Well, I invite you this morning to turn to Luke chapter 1. We're going to begin in verse 57, Luke chapter 1 and verse 57. Our sermon will be found this morning. I do invite you to take a pew Bible out and use that this morning. In fact, if you don't have a Bible of your own, we'd love for you to just take that Bible in front of you as our gift to you. We're going to be covering about 25 verses this morning. We're going to be working largely just verse by verse, and I think you'll find it helpful to engage in God's Word this morning if God's Word is in front of you and you could refer to it as we work our way through this text. I do also want to let you know, and uh, this will be important to some of you, that uh, Josh Smith this morning, who is serving our God down in Ecuador, is preaching, um, and we want to pray for Josh. Uh, I'm not sure if this is his uh, first sermon he's ever preached. Uh, where, where's Tom and, and where are you guys are usually? Is this his first sermon? His first sermon, and uh, by the way, he's doing it in Spanish. And so um, pretty extraordinary that uh, he's learned enough Spanish being down there. Of course, he knew some before he went, but... Um, he is um, endeavoring to proclaim God's Word and literally speaking in tongues. And so we uh, praise the Lord for that. And so in a moment, we'll want to pray for Josh as we ask God to work through him. So hopefully you found your way to Luke chapter 1 and verse 57. Hear now the Word of God. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord, God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant David, as He spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets from old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember His holy covenant, the oath that He swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve Him without fear and holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare His way, to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in the spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. And so now, Father, we come and long to hear from You. We long to know You better through Your Word. 
And so we ask that You would come by Your Spirit and teach us that we might follow Jesus more faithfully, that we might give You our hearts more earnestly, that we might find our delight in You with greater passion and joy. And as we sit under Your Word this morning and ask You to help us, we pray that Your Spirit would be working around this world and the thousands, hundreds of thousands of assemblies, churches gathering together to hear Your Word on this day of the resurrection. We pray especially for our dear brother Josh, this young man who is serving You in Ecuador as he comes now and prepares even at perhaps even this very moment he's standing in the pulpit for the first time. We ask that You would equip him, Father, that he might proclaim You clearly and earnestly and that those who hear him might be drawn close to You, that Your people may be strengthened and encouraged and the lost may be saved through the mercy and grace of God by the proclaimed Word through our brother. Let Your Spirit fall upon him in great power, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Some time ago I came across an article entitled... Advice to a Bored Young Man. Article begins by saying, Died, age 20, buried, age 60. The epitaph of too many Americans. Mummification sets in on too many young men at an age when they should be ripping the world wide open. For example, many people are reading this, who are reading this page are doing so with the aid of bifocals. Inventor, Benjamin Franklin, age 79. The presses that printed this page were powered by electricity. One of the first harnessers, Benjamin Franklin, age 40. Some are reading this on the campus of one of the Ivy League universities. Founder, Benjamin Franklin, age 31. Others in a library. Who founded the first library in America? Benjamin Franklin, age 25. Some got their copy through the U.S. mail. Its father, Benjamin Franklin, age 31. Who started the first fire department, invented the lightning rod, designed a heating stove still in use today? Benjamin Franklin, ages 31, 43, and 36. Economist, philosopher, diplomat, printer, publisher, linguist who spoke and wrote in five languages, advocate for, of paratroops, paratroopers from balloons a century before the airplane was invented. All this, and he had exactly two years of formal schooling. Now, I trust that this article is written to motivate and encourage us. I don't know what it does for you. I find it somewhat annoying. Um, in fact, it was a Mark Twain who said, few things are harder to put up with than the annoyance of a good example. Well, this morning I want to consider a good example for us, a man who was likewise a credible, productive life. I speak of John the Baptizer. In fact, his ministry would be very short. It would probably last about six months before he was arrested and shortly after they're executed. But his ministry just kind of exploded on the scene, I think, as God would have had it. And, and he um, reached, the Bible tells us, all of Jerusalem and many more and did all of this in a matter of months, an incredibly productive life, an incredibly productive ministry. And Luke will tell us about his ministry. We're not going to consider the ministry of John this morning, but we get to Luke chapter 3 in the coming months. And, and then in Luke 7, we'll, we'll hear a great deal about John the baptizer. But today we come to this story which describes his birth. In fact, even at his birth, they already knew he would be great. For you note, verse 66, 
And all who heard him laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? Right? They, they knew something was remarkable, for the hand of the Lord was with him. God's hand rested upon them, and they knew this from the very time in which he was born, which is probably why his birth is accompanied with such praise. This song of celebration that we hear, this morning we'll consider the, the second of Luke's four nativity songs, his four Christmas carols that he gives us. It seems to me that, that Christmas and music have always gone together. Even from the very first Christmas, evidently, that there was singing accompanying the, the birth of Jesus. And, and it continues today. Right? We have a whole genre of music called Christmas music, much of which is absolutely ridiculous. Right? And, and, but some of it's wonderful. We sang some of it this morning, and we're going to enjoy, enjoy that, be blessed by that, and be ministered to a week from tonight at our Christmas cantata. What a wonderful opportunity it would be for you to worship our God and to invite your neighbors and your friends to come hear this, this choir that's been working on this cantata for many months now. And of course, this evening, our children are going to sing to us tonight. Sing to us of a, of a God who came to save us, took on flesh to come and redeem us. And what a great, wonderful opportunity. Well, today in this text this morning, we're not going to hear from the children. We're going to hear from the father of a child, Zechariah, on the occasion of the birth of his son. And him, through the Holy Spirit, sings about salvation that is coming. In fact, he begins by praising God for salvation. You notice uh, the events that precede his song. And verse 57 says, For now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And so she has been pregnant now for nine months. And, and she evidently uh, had this labor, and we don't know what the labor was like, but we simply read that she, she bore a son. And I don't know, in my mind's eye, you have old Elizabeth there with, with her baby, and I, great, I, I imagine there was great joy and great delight that she, this, this older woman who had struggled with barrenness her whole life, has now received this child. In fact, the story reminds me very much of another story, the story of Sarah, who was also barren and was very old when she received a child. In fact, she was in her 90s. Her whole life spent without a child, and, and eventually she got a son in her 90s, and she couldn't stop laughing. The Bible tells us she just laughed and laughed and laughed. And, and In fact, Scripture says, God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. She even called her son, what better name to call him, but we're going to call him laughter, which is evidently the Hebrew word Isaac. Well, I wonder if Elizabeth, Elizabeth is laughing here, or maybe she's crying. I'm not sure what she's doing. Uh, there's, of course, Zachariah, who couldn't laugh. Uh, he's still silent, sitting in the corner, perhaps tears rolling down his gray beard. And you have Liz's laughter and joy mixed with her son's cries, and it rang across the hillside in Judea. In fact, her neighbors took notice, for we see in verse 58, and her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her. And they rejoiced with her. Right? In a small village, a birth is going to be big news, but especially the birth of, of the priest and his wife who have been barren for so long and this miracle birth that they're past the age of, of having children and, and the son comes and they're filled with great joy just as, as the angel proclaimed. Remember when Zechariah appeared to Gabriel? Back in chapter 1, and he said in verse 13, Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. And exactly what he said has come true, according to verse 58. The, the whole village side is rejoicing in God's mercy. And that's what Luke says here. You see that in verse 58? And the neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her. And they rejoiced. They saw God's hand upon this family. 
he was good to this old couple. And they celebrated his mercy. Well, eight days later came time for another day of celebration. The circumcision of John, we see in verse 59. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. This, this would be a big day for them. This would be a sign of the covenantal faithfulness of this family. This would be a way for them to declare that we belong to God and so does this child belongs to God. This child is God's and, and the family and the neighbors would have gathered together. There would be witnesses at this event. I imagine the whole village probably gathered together to watch the covenantal faithfulness of, of this priest and his wife. And they bring him together and, and everybody's there as we see in verse 59 and they would have called him Zechariah after his father and, and so it's at this time on the eighth day that a child, a son especially is given a name and they, uh, everyone expected him to be named Zechariah after all it's his firstborn son I don't, I'm not sure if this was the custom but this was the expectation in this day and so they were literally trying to call him Zechariah you can imagine everybody gathered together and say, oh, isn't little Zachariah cute? Or let me hold little Zachariah. Or isn't this wonderful that little Zachariah is here? And, and they're trying to honor this priest, aren't they? Who has served them so faithfully and loved them and been with them for so many years. And, and, and so they say, we got big Zach and we got little Zach. And naming him already. Well, it's a nice thought, isn't it? But Elizabeth will have none of it. For we see in verse 60, but his mother answered, no... He shall be called John. And I don't know if you could tell from that verse, she's not opening this up for discussion. As someone emphatic. His name's not Zachariah. We're going to call him John. Well, they didn't, they didn't know what to think about this. They want to know what she has against Zachariah. In fact, verse 61, they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. They, they don't get it, right? Why, why not honor your husband? Well, you know, what, what's wrong with Zachariah? I mean, where's John come from? It doesn't even start with a Z, right? I mean, you don't, you don't like your husband? What's wrong with that name? And they, don't, they don't get it. They're, they're getting somewhat upset. you got no relatives. In fact, they're not going to let this die for verse 62. And they may sign to his father inquiring him what he wanted to be called. I don't know if you have a family like this, right? We won't let him die. Just keep pushing and pushing. But they run to Zechariah. The poor man is mute, evidently, because they have to make signs to him. Mute, uh, excuse me, deaf and mute. He can't even hear what's going on. And, and they're all thinking she's trying to name him behind his back, right? She has something against him, perhaps. He's just sitting in the corner once again. He doesn't know what's going on. And so they run to him and somehow are able to make signs to him to communicate this conversation. You notice Zechariah's response in verse 63. And he asks for a writing tablet and he wrote his name is John literally John is his name you notice by the way he doesn't say we're thinking about calling him John in fact it's even more emphatic than Elizabeth Elizabeth said we're going to call him John he shall be called John well Zachariah says oh, he's already been he's already been named I mean it wasn't up to me it wasn't up to Elizabeth God has already named him long before as we saw the angel speak to him well, this astonishes everyone as we read at the end of verse 63, and they all wondered, or maybe your translation says they were all astonished. And what are they doing? They thought, what's going on here? They're breaking our traditions. They're going, they're going a different way. I don't know if, if you've encountered this. Sometimes when we follow Christ and make a decision for Christ, we have to start making decisions that maybe our family doesn't understand. You're going to educate your children how? You're going to do what with your money? You're going to, to move where and do what as, as a job? You're going to name them what? Right? And they don't understand. 
Sometimes this happens, doesn't it? We see it's been happening for thousands of years. They're, they're thinking, these people are weird. What, what, you've changed. You're not the person I used to know. And so they insist, no, we're going to call him John. Now, when I was studying this, I thought, well, what, why does it really matter? I mean, he could still be a prophet if his name's Zachariah. I mean, you could call him Frank for that matter. And he still could go and point to the Messiah. Why does he have to be called John? Well, Luke doesn't tell us, but I, I assume that the, the early readers would have understood that John means Jehovah is gracious. And it is through Jesus that John is going to point to that God's grace is going to be on display. The Bible tells us in 1 Peter that He is the God of all grace. The psalmist says He gives more grace. Hebrews says we approach the throne of grace. Scripture will tell us that God's grace is great, sovereign, and rich. It is exceeding and manifold. His grace is all-sufficient, abundant, and glorious. John will tell us that Jesus has come to give us grace upon grace, wave after wave of grace. He has come to give grace. And and God wants to name Him God is gracious because of the ministry in which He is going to have. Everyone's upset because the miracle baby is not going to carry on the family name. But He's not supposed to perpetuate the family name. He's supposed to point the people to one who would give them a new name. He's supposed to point to one who would introduce them to a new family. And he will do it not by merit or righteousness or goodness in you or me, but all by grace. We're going to call him John, he says, for God is gracious. Well, he doesn't say that, does he? He writes it. He's still mute. He still can't talk. It's eight days after the baby has been born, and he's got to be thinking, what, what's going on? Why can't I still speak? Well, it's when he writes down that he, uh, when he writes down his name is John, you notice it is at this time, verse 64, and immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue was loosed and he spoke. It was once he wrote it down that he began to speak. In fact, what did he say? Well, we're not told immediately, but he said he blessing God there at the end of verse 64. He, he opened his mouth at one time. Remember when he was made mute? He opened his mouth when he should enough, kind of like us. And, and God says, I'm going to make you mute. You doubted me. I'm going to make you mute. And God rendered him mute. God was disciplining him. But the discipline, we wonder how long is that going to take? In fact, the angel tells him, if you look back in verse 20, when he was disciplined, and behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place. All of these things. Once they take place, then the discipline will be over. See, God's not waiting for God to act. He's waiting for Zechariah to act. And when Zechariah responds in faith, it's at that time that the discipline will be removed. The the unbelief had closed his mouth and it will be belief in God uh, exemplified through obedience that will open his tongue again. In fact, Luke tells us it was at the precise moment that he wrote this down. And immediately, it says, his mouth was opened and his tongue was loosed and he spoke praising God. God removes that discipline and he praises him. This man who's been silent for nine months, all pent up, praise, and this dam bursts forth. And he begins to sing, as we see in verse 68, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel. In fact, I wonder what those nine months were like for Zechariah, not being able to speak or, or even to hear this nine months of, of silence. Perhaps initially he was upset with himself, thinking, what, you fool, how could you not believe the angel Gabriel? What were you thinking? But eventually, somewhere along that lines, he recognized, well, God may have made me mute. He may have made me deaf, but he has not made me blind. I wonder if he got out the scrolls and began to pour over Scripture. 
begin to take this nine-month hiatus and just to study God's Word and what God has promised. I think this is incredibly profitable for the old man. I think it's, in fact, incredibly encouraging to see a man who the Bible says is righteous and blameless before the Lord, who has served the Lord almost his entire life, who is beyond childbearing years, a, a senior citizen in the same, and he says, I am not done growing. There's more for me to learn. There's more intimacy for me to draw near to God. I'm going to go after God during this time. And Zechariah does this great encouragement in the midst of his discipline, he uses this time to draw near to God. See, that's what discipline is given to us. Enable us to, to draw near to the one who, who is disciplining us, humbling us, that we might praise Him. I don't know if you've ever experienced God's discipline. Maybe some of you even now, you feel the discipline of the Lord on you. Understand that God disciplines you because He loves you. And He wants you to draw near to Him. He wants you to praise Him. In fact, you want to experience God's wrath? That's when He just lets you go. That's when He just lets you fall further and further into sin. Romans 1 tells us as much that God's wrath is demonstrated by letting us, letting us go into our sinful way. But God's love is when He says, No more. No more. I will not let you harden your heart against me anymore. I will not let you continue to, to worship these idols which will ruin your family and your life no more. And He brings His discipline upon us. He takes us through surgery and is painful. But it is for our good. He's doing it because He loves us to, to heal us, to bring us to Him. C.S. Lewis uh, wrote the, the book The Silver Chair in the Chronicles of Narnia series. And in that series there is this, this character called Puddle Glum who is a Marsh Wiggle. Now, Marsh Wiggle is a, like an elf with large feet. Right? And so we come to this point in the story when the witch is burning magical fire and causing all the heroes to, to fall under this enchantment, this spell. And they forget who they are and the, what they're trying to do, where they've come from. And, and before, right before this, this spell becomes permanent, well, here comes Puddle Glum. And he comes and stomps out the magical fire with his, with his big foot badly burning himself. And as the heroes smelled the burning flesh of Puddle Glum's foot, they began to awake out of their enchantment because, as Lewis writes, there is nothing enchanting about the smell of burnt marsh wiggle. Okay? <laughs> Listen, sometimes God burns you. He disciplines you to wake you up from the enchantment of sin, to bring you to yourself to bring you back to faith and obedience. He had done this in Zachariah's life and he responded appropriately. He came to him and followed God, even in the midst of the pressure that he faced. Well, the neighbors responded in verse 65 and fear came on all their neighbors. They, they realized God was at work, didn't they? They saw that this man who has been silent now is speaking and he's praising God and they know that God is near. Something marvelous, wonderful, powerful is about to happen. And they become afraid. But they not only become afraid, they begin to talk about this as we read on. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. They begin to, to speak about it. The buzz kind of spread all over the hillside. Have you heard about the old mute priest and his barren wife, how they had a baby? Have you heard that, that instead of naming him after himself, he named him God is gracious? Have you heard that all of a sudden when he named him, he began to speak and out of his mouth came like a psalm of David. He began to praise God. Have you heard about this? And they spoke about this. And those who considered this or those who heard about this begin to consider it. For verse 66 tells us, And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts. What then will this child, saying, what then will this child be? 
And they begin to think about this. For the hand of the Lord was on him. They must have thought, they say he's the forerunner. They say he's the, the promised Elijah. They say the Messiah is coming soon. What does this mean? And they laid it up on their hearts. It's the exact same phrase used in chapter 2 and verse 19. But Mary treasured all these things up, pondering them in her heart. Remember when the shepherds came and told, them, told her what they had seen. Well, they, these people are hearing about John and they're, they're putting them on their heart. They're reflecting upon these truths. It's good for us to do that, to, to spend time in spiritual reflection and pondering and consideration. Our lives are so incredibly busy that I think we, we often don't take times to actually think and ponder. We're so hectic, and, and, and often our, even our Christianity is reduced to sound bites, right? I just want like uh, the one-minute Bible devotion book or whatever it is these days, and just give me a minute of Jesus so I can get on with my life. When we see what's going on here is, no, they're considering it, they're pondering, they're thinking about this. I like the book uh, Screw Tape Letters when we see a man who's in a museum and he was at this time in this reflective place beginning to consider spiritual truths. And the, before he pondered them too long, the demon screw tape got him out of the museum and back on the steps, back into real life with passing buses and shouting boys. It's good for us to exercise time to set aside, to ponder and consider. Not even to read God's Word, but to, after reading it, to think about it, to ponder it, to consider it. Well, evidently, this is what Zechariah has done, and he has pondered God's Word and, and considered what God is doing, and, and he leaps forth in praise, but not unaided. For we see in verse 67, and his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. Remember, the Holy Spirit first fell upon his son John while he's in the womb, and then fell upon his wife Elizabeth when Mary came and visited her. And now, just to complete the family, the Holy Spirit falls upon dad, falls upon Zechariah. And it's through that spirit that he now begins to, to praise God, to, as you see in verse 68, bless God. Remember, in fact, Zechariah, when he was in the temple and he's supposed to come out and give the blessing, he couldn't do it. Well, he finally, nine months later, he's able to do it. In fact, we call this song the Benedictus, which is the Latin word for blessing. It's been called this for centuries. And finally, he's able to give his blessing. It just comes from the first word in his psalm, verse 68. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel. He begins to, to bless God. I, I picture in my mind this, this old priest now able to speak with his son in his arms, his tongue now loosed as he blesses the Lord God of Israel. He praises him for the salvation in which he is bringing. Verse 68, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He's visited us. He's come to us. This phrase visited will be a phrase that Jesus will use to describe his own ministry a number of times. For instance, he will say, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, for this very reason I have come. I have visited. He came for us. We didn't go searching for God. I don't know if that's your testimony. It certainly is mine. I wasn't looking for him. I didn't go hunting for God. He came to me. He took pity on me. He took pity on you and gave you grace. And Zechariah understands that he has redeemed his people. He is buying us back from bondage. Verse 69, he continues his praise for salvation. And he has raised up, for, raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And so he says God has come. He's raised up this horn of salvation. He praises God for the salvation that he has brought just as he promised he would. In fact, you see, secondly, he not only considers praising God for his salvation, but he considers the promise of salvation. 
You see that there in verse 69, and raised up a horn of salvation in the house of his servant David, that God had promised David that his son would sit upon the throne. And Zechariah understood that he is coming. He knows it's not John, by the way, because they're not of the house of David. And so he recognizes that, that, that Mary is of the house of David, and her husband Joseph is uh, also, her fiancé at this time, is of the, of the house of David, and sees that promise. That's not the only promise he sees. Note verse 72. To show mercy promised to our fathers and to remember His holy covenant. The oath that He swore to our father Abraham. Um, He remembers what God had promised to this childless pagan named Abraham. That through you, I'm going to bless the world. Through your seed, I'm going to bless the world. You see, Jesus Christ is the descendant of Abraham in whom God's promises are fulfilled. He is the son of David as promised. The point that Zechariah is making is that God doesn't just pull Jesus out of the thin air. doesn't say, you know what I should do? I should send a Messiah. That sounds good. This is what God has been planning. He's not making this up as he goes along. And he's been promising this and planning this. And Zechariah believed this. He believed the promises of God that God had said he was going to do this. He walked by faith. In fact, not even knowing the salvation events that you and I do, he trusted God to keep his covenant rested on the promises of God. I think we would do, to learn, do well to learn from Zechariah. It seems like so often we get so distracted with life and, and life becomes uh, full of turmoil and difficulty and we get our eyes off the promises in which God has given us and onto the trouble in which surrounds us. The promises of God are given to us that we might fight for faith. Fight to believe that this life is short and eternity is long and forgiveness is assured and Christ is returning. God's promises will never fail us. God's word will never be broken. He is not a man that he should lie. Zechariah believed these promises. In fact, the promises that he uh, focused on uh, mostly, it seems to me, was the power in salvation. And thirdly, the power in salvation. He, he refers to verse 68, our redemption. But we might think in our context, well, is he referring to redemption of sin? I'm not so sure. In fact, I think he's considering a political redemption. In fact, you notice verse 69, he says, a horn of salvation, raised up a horn of salvation. That imagery is used a lot in the Old Testament. When he says a horn of salvation, he's not referring to a trumpet. He's referring to a weapon. He's referring to, to a wild ox that would bring about salvation when strength and power that Jesus is the horn of salvation. He comes to have victory. He is the weapon of salvation. In fact, Psalm 92 says, For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish. All evildoers will be scattered. But you have exalted my horn like that of a wild ox. You see, when the Bible talks about the, the horn of salvation, the picture is of mighty ox. I don't know if you've ever stand next to a, to a large steer or something like that uh, uh, where your head comes up to their shoulders and, and their neck is the size of a barrel and their, their horns out there six feet long. Right? They didn't have trucks and tanks back then, but they had these mighty animals. In fact, he says there in verse 69, he raised up the horn of salvation. The picture is of a, of a bull tossing his horns in display of power, rhythmically swaying his head before he will charge. The Bible tells us in Deuteronomy 33, he has majesty and his horns are like the horns of a wild ox. With them he shall gore the peoples, all of them to the ends of the earth, that he comes in strength and power and and might, and he expects his Messiah to be like a great ox lowering its head, driving the people out. He would come to destroy his enemies. 
In fact, you notice he's very emphatic there in verse 71 that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hates us. And again in verse 74, being delivered from the hand of our enemies. So he talks about redemption, not in the sense of forgiveness of sin. He talks about conquering our enemies. He didn't see, perhaps. He didn't know that Christ, the Messiah, would come and die for sin. Those prophesied in the Old Testament, he, he missed it. The Messianic King would come and lower his head to drive out the enemies. He wasn't alone in this. Others considered this. By the way, he's not wrong. You do understand that Christ will make a footstool for all his enemies. That he will come back in great power and victory and he will gather his people under his rule. Our God is a protector. Our Christ is a warrior. He is a king. And I don't think we should minimize that. I don't think we should forget that. That that our redemption is not just an individual thing. It's just not me and Jesus. He plans to redeem the entire world. He comes to defeat all who persist in the rebellion. All who will not seek the forgiveness and pardon that he offers. He will come and defeat our enemies. All of them. Defeat His enemies. But he didn't, He's not going to wait to the second coming to defeat our enemies. On His first coming, He defeated our greatest enemy, namely the devil. And it was through the cross that He had His victory. The Bible tells us, your adversary, the devil, prowls like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Well, Christ came to do battle against Him. And in our study of the Gospel of Luke, we will see this over and over again. The battle against the demon and his, the devil and his forces. The spiritual warfare. First John says the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. He took care of all the devil's accusations against you by dying on the cross. He defeated him. The great power of our salvation. In fact, one, com- one pastor in preaching on this text preached, Satan may be a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, but none of those who take refuge in Christ the horn of our salvation, can he destroy. If I were an artist, I would paint for my home a special Christmas painting and hang it on the wall near the manger scene. It would be one of those big oil canvases. The scene would be of a distant hill at dawn. The sun is about to rise behind the hill and the rays shoot up and out the picture. And all alone, silhouetted on the hill in the center of the picture, very dark, a magnificent wild ox with his back seven feet tall and the crown of his head nine feet tall. And on both sides of his head, there's a horn curving out and up six feet long, 12 inches thick at the base. He stands there, sovereign and serene, facing the southern sky with his massive neck slightly cocked. Impaled at the end of his right horn hangs a huge dead lion. What a powerful picture that is of our, our Lord who has come in great power to defeat our enemies, to redeem us from His accusations. In fact, Zechariah goes on to tell us why he would do this, the, the purpose of our salvation. You know, verse 74, and we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve Him without fear and holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. You know, there's a purpose in defeating our enemies. There's a purpose in redeeming you. It is to create in you holiness and righteousness, a a fearless life that you might serve God. You see that there in verse 74, that we might serve Him. The, The redemption that God has secured for you through the death of Jesus is not simply about getting you to heaven. It's not simply about forgiving your sin or even making you happy. 
It is about slaying your enemies that He might remove the fear. It is about liberating you from sin that you might be holy and righteous so that you can serve Him, that you can worship Him. He intends to change you. He intends to transform you. He longs for His people who He has redeemed to come and serve Him in holiness and righteousness. Years ago, a Salvation Army missionary named Captain Shaw led a medical missionary team to a leper colony in India. His eyes welled with tears when he saw three leper uh, prisoners, hands and feet bound in shackles, and the chains cut into their diseased flesh. He said, please unfasten these chains. And the guard said, we cannot. It is not safe. They're not simply lepers. They are dangerous criminals. Captain Shaw insisted, saying, I will be responsible. Their suffering is enough. And he took the key and tenderly removed the shackles and treated their bleeding ankles and wrists. About two weeks later, he had second thoughts about what he had done. He was being called away overnight where he had to leave his wife and children alone. He was afraid to do so. His wife said, I'll be okay. We'll, we'll be all right. And so the doctor left. Well, shortly after he left, Mrs. Shaw went to the door and was startled to see these three men standing on her stoop. And they immediately noticed her alarm and explained to her, we know the doctor is gone. We, we will stay here all night so that no harm will come to you. See, that was their response to the doctor's love for them to their redemption, being freed from their bondage and their shackles. And that too should be our response to our God. When He frees us, when He liberates us, when He pays for our sin, who should do something in our hearts, should transform us that we might serve Him in this holy and righteous service and love and adoration. He's come to, to free us that we might do this work, that we might no, no longer be enslaved to sin, that we might serve Him. Jesus, our King, as He reigns. In fact, you think about our Lord who is King from heaven and the world cannot see His kingdom. It is invisible. And He has left His people here who live in His kingdom to make it visible. We serve our King declaring His kingdom amongst our neighbors and the nation, showing He is the one we serve. We, we show this invisible kingdom when we are generous and not greedy. We show the, the kingdom of God when we forgive and are not bitter, or when we love and don't hate, when we build up and not gossip, when we serve rather than take, when we care rather than ignore. We show that we belong to Jesus when we love our enemies and bless our persecutors and pray for those who hate us. We give them glimpses of the kingdom of God. We show them why it is we are saved. Zechariah understood that this salvation would bring about this service and and that God had sent His Son, John, to prepare them. Lastly, consider the preparation for salvation. I love verse 76. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. You notice here there's a change. He's no longer singing to God. He's really no longer singing about God. He begins to sing to His Son. He says, to you, child. I don't know if you can see the motion here. This man who loves God and been longing for a son and has given up hope. And now he has a son and not just any son, but the forerunner of the Messiah. This man who's been silent for nine months now begins to speak and he takes his son in his arms and begins to address him. I don't know if you dads have ever done that. I've been blessed to have seven children and every child that God has given me within 30 minutes of them being born, I, I take them in my arms and I, I, to be honest, I begin to preach to them. Um, and I know they don't understand. I'm aware of that, but I teach them. I quote Scripture to them. I quote 
For instance, Ephesians 6.1 is a passage I quote to them. I, I tell my children, mostly for myself, mostly as a reminder to me, that they're not mine. They're God's. And He has blessed me that I might serve my God as their Father. I might have a stewardship over them. And I say, I, will, I promise you, I'm going to teach you, son, how to be a man. I'm going to teach you how to be a father and a son. I'm going to teach you how to be a husband. I'm going to teach you how to be a follower of Christ. Well, here Zechariah picks up his son who has a very special ministry. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. This is what you'll do, John. You're going to be a prophet. In fact, as a prophet, you will prepare the people, for we read on, for you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways. How will He prepare the people? Verse 77, to give knowledge of salvation to His people. You're going to teach them what it means to be saved. Well, what does it mean? Well, it's here that Zechariah moves from the political imagery to the spiritual, saying at the end of verse 77, in the forgiveness of their sins, he's no longer dealing with, God's no longer dealing with our enemies, but he's dealing with the enmity in our own heart. He says he's going to forgive our sins. This is what you're to teach them, John. And John would. He would make them aware of sin. He would go about the countryside saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. But he would not simply make them aware of sin. He would make them aware of forgiveness. For the Bible tells us in Luke 3, he went proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. You think, well, how is it that God can forgive us? How is it that a holy God can forgive sinful, rebellious people who would be through the work of the one to whom John pointed, Jesus Christ, who would come and die upon the cross, and there he would pay for my sin and your sin, and for all the sin of people, of those who would bow their knee to him. Three days later, he would rise from the dead. In fact, Jesus, when he would celebrate the Lord's Supper, a meal which we are to remember in a moment, he would say, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I will forgive sinners. Now the question is why? Why would God forgive sinners? Why would God forgive those who rebel against us, against Him? Well, Zechariah tells us in verse 78. Why the forgiveness of sins? Because of the tender mercy of our God. He's merciful. He's tender with you. He loves you. And the great mercy of God sent His Son that He might forgive you, that He might do the work of redemption for you. The Bible tells us that you don't fix your life to come to Him. You simply come to Him by faith. Acts 10, everyone who believes in Him receives forgiveness of sins through His name. Believe. God would forgive all your sins, no matter what you've done, no matter what what you thought or said. He would forgive all your sins because of His tender mercy for you. In fact, Zechariah ends his song by describing what this forgiveness is like. You see in verse 79, he says the the Messiah is coming to give light to those who sit in in darkness and in the shadow of death. That's a picture of what it's like to be outside of Christ, to not know God. One commentator says the picture is of travelers who have lost their way in the wilderness and are overtaken by night. They grope for the path, but it eludes them. Finally, in despair, they could do nothing but sit down in the darkness where death from wild beasts lurks in the shadows and hope for the morning light. It's a picture of those outside of Christ. What, what hope do they have? 
to just sit down in the darkness, but God has come, according to verse 78, whereby the sunrise shall visit us on high. The light has dawned. Christ has come to bring light to us, to bring hope to those who are in despair and direction to those who are lost and light to those who are sitting in the dark. He Himself declared, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows Me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. He has come to guide us and to lead us and to to illuminate our lives in order that, as Zechariah says, we our feet might be guided in the way of peace to lead us from this day forward. This is what the Messiah has come to do. John would come to prepare the people for him. In fact, we end our text noting verse 80. And the child grew and became strong in the spirit. I just you love that phrase, strong in the spirit. What a, what a laudable goal to strive after. And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance in Israel. There the Spirit would guide John out in the wilderness and one day he would raise the curtain on salvation. He would be the prelude act declaring that forgiveness has come because of a merciful God proclaiming that the sun has now shining upon those who are in darkness. Salvation is here. Do you know that salvation? Have you been redeemed from your sin, from your selfishness, from your self-focus? Christ would redeem you even now if you would believe in Him. And for those of us who do believe, are we, are we going to praise Him for that? Will we join our brother Zechariah in praising God for that this Christmas season? That Christ has come, the light has dawned upon us, that we might worship Him and praise Him. Father in heaven, we want to be people of praise. We want to exalt You and to worship You and to lift You up on high. And so help us to do so this Christmas season. Help us to exalt Your name and to praise Your you for your salvation. And Father, we pray for those who perhaps do not know your salvation and ask that you would help them even now that they might trust in Jesus. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.